Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. You know, I've been using the Vortex Optics brand for years. The high quality combined with their unmatched VAP warranty makes them, in my opinion, the best in the business. Now, Vortex has a huge variety of optics to accommodate any and every hunter's needs and budget. With Vortex, you don't need to spend thousands of dollars to get great optics, but, you know, if you're the kind of feller who doesn't mind spending their entire paycheck on a set of optics, they got you covered too. Now, I've talked to the folks over at Vortex, and their theory is, look, shit happens. Things get broken. With Vortex, it doesn't matter if you drop your binos off that high glass and spot, or you run over your rangefinder that you put on your tailgate while shooting your bow, or your kid accidentally threw your spotter in the fire. As long as you have something that the folks over at Vortex can identify as their brand, they're going to replace it. Free. No charge. No BS either. New set. In the box. Done. You're back hunting again. Now, I know from experience this is a great selling feature with the missus. When you got to break the news to her that you're all going to have to eat a little lighter over the next two weeks because you just spent your whole damn paycheck on a set of binos, just explain to her, that's a lifelong investment, and she'll get right over it. Well, maybe not right over it, but eventually. Now, I love Vortex Optics. I've always used their stuff, and I always will. And now I love them even more because they're a supporter of this podcast you guys are listening to. Now, I'm happy to be working with Vortex Canada. My wife got over the whole two weeks pay on a set of binos thing, so she's happy again. And you're going to be more than happy with your new set of Vortex Optics. I guarantee it. This sucks. How you doing down there? Well, we, uh, I know I don't expect much sympathy from you guys up in Canada, but we made it through Snowmageddon. We had, uh, yeah, for about four or five days, we had temperatures ranging between one and 10 degrees and snow on the ground here yeah that's unheard of for down there i know that's crazy i can't imagine how cold it was up north yeah we we got it uh, really cold not as not as cold as our neighbors to the uh, east there in alberta they got to the minus 40s minus 50 degrees celsius so oh it's pretty cold goodness. out there yeah i guess yeah so but, uh, yeah we survived and you know unfortunately I mean, fortunately, I guess my power didn't go out, but I had, uh, I had done a bunch. I have a bunch of stuff as far as preparedness. I was ready to test my plan and I never lost power. <laughs> well, that's good. You're on top of it for sure. <laughs> what, uh, 
what's the now you guys aren't really geared up for snow down there are you i mean I, you guys don't have i'm at well i mean i imagine you don't have snow trucks or anything like no, that do we you? don't have plows i mean i think they uh ended up they did have some sand trucks because we do get a little bit of black ice but um for the most part yeah they're not having to move much snow around and so the entire time i would say most of the streets went unplowed wow that must have been pretty hectic on the uh, <laughs> on the major routes well you know i think covid prepared everybody to hunker down because everybody's in you know, locked up in confinement anyway. And then, uh, so I think people were just, it was great because I just shoveled the driveway and threw the snow in the back of my four wheel drive truck and shoot, I was going all over the place. <laughs> just added the weight over the back wheels. And it was, it was great because there wasn't many people on the road and, and uh, being, you know, we, we try to stay prepared. I mean, you can't prepare for everything, but uh, um, when you're prepared, then you can, you know, help your neighbors and help other people. So we did some uh, stuff like that. I mean, I have two generators. And so, you know, having the ability to loan somebody a generator or, or whatever. It's, but then again, you know, you're torn because here you are, you put all this time and effort into being prepared. You can't just give your stuff away because you're <laughs> trying to be prepared for your, your yeah, family. Yeah, I, I hear you. It's hard to, uh, it's one thing to prepare for yourself, but you can't prepare for everybody else who's not yeah. doing the same as you. Exactly. And especially when, you know, a week or two prior, I was telling people, hey, you know, you just, you need to have enough food to last, you know, a couple of weeks. That's not hard, just buying extra stuff at the store or, or whatever, and, you know, make sure that you have a heat source or a way to generate heat um, because, you know, could have rolling, you know, blackouts, which we did. Um, there's thousands of houses here in Texas that have every single pipe broken in their house. Yeah, because I, I imagine the uh, building code down there is a lot different. Like up here, you know, we're adapt to the colder temperatures. So, I mean, you know, we get to minus 20, minus 30 degrees Celsius. We don't have any, any um, pipes freezing or not. But that being said, you know, they're, they're quite a bit underground. So I guess it's a lot different for you guys down there. And some of those older houses, I imagine, you know, the, they had the lines going into and out of the house, they probably, probably uh, had a hard time with the cold. Yeah, absolutely. And it was, uh, well, you know, you, it's not uncommon for us to have you know, we had 30 days of up over, you know, 104, 106 degrees. And so I don't know that it's the insulation in the homes, but it's definitely the insulating of the pipes that, um, that was remiss because, you know, you get heat, it's not going to really do anything to the pipes. I mean, it, it's less money to heat your shower because the pipes are already heated up, but you know, when you start talking about that cold and I mean, I can't tell you how many people with the loss of power have had their pools completely destroyed. That's a bummer. Yeah, it is. So is it, is all the snow gone now or are you guys still oh, yeah. dealing with it? Yeah, no, it's, well, it was a little bit chillier today. I think it was like 64, 65, but we've been in 70 plus weather almost right after the cold 
front left. That's more normal temperatures for you guys. Yeah, exactly. Okay, today I'm joined by Greg Matthews. Greg is the author of uh, Wild Awakening. Greg's book, uh, it's received tons of five-star ratings and reviews on it. Greg, maybe give us the the one-liner on your book. How would you describe it in, in one sentence? Well, the one-liner is, it's about, um, it's an adventure story, but it's actually, it goes a lot deeper than that. It's it's about identity restoration of a very broken individual. <laughs> and it, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's about a grizzly attack. It's about adventure in Alaska, but it goes way, way back and to some deep-seated stuff. So identity restoration is probably what most people uh, uh, take away from it. That's a good way to describe it. Now, in your book, you talk a great deal about your father. Maybe you can tell us a bit about him. Well, you know, I... Here's a little uh, side note. I actually, before I um, got published, um, I actually felt I needed to go to my dad and ask permission about uh, to publish it just because of the fact that it talks about, uh, I mean, let's be honest. We all have, families are messy and, and things are broken at times. And I was writing about some things about my upbringing. And, uh, you know, my dad was a Marine uh, United States Marine, and then he was a California High Patrolman, and then he did a full career after a full career in the CHP with NCIS. So he was he was a man's man, and and uh, I wouldn't say he ruled with an iron fist, but you there wasn't much words spoken when he you know when he told you to do something, and you jumped to it right away. And uh, so I really really looked up to him and. Uh, but, you know, he had his broken pieces, too, in the sense of uh, didn't really know how to show feelings, didn't really know how to show love. It was more of you had to uh, you had to produce, you had to achieve, you had to really um, do some special things to get his attention. And so, you know, you can imagine what kind of environment that leads to. And, and if that's the case of getting dad's approval, then you're going to go out and do a whole bunch of stuff to try and, uh, uh, you know, just to gain his approval. I, I kind of feel like, uh, you know, it's sort of ubiquitous to their generation. Um, my father was the same way. I mean, he wasn't without love, but I mean, he wasn't, uh, as affectionate as, you know, I am with my children. Right. I don't, I don't know if that's something looking back that, you know, maybe I thought was lacking. So I try to work on, or if it just comes more naturally now as you know, the times have changed, but you know, and I, and I think, um, you know, they even talk about, uh, their fathers as you know, being harder than them. So, right. And yeah, definitely. I had to definitely take a second look after all the stuff that I went through up there, you know, in Alaska and, and realizing that, uh, you know, so I'm a, I'm a Christian and, you know, I follow Christ and I look at him as a dad to me and, and, you know, I'm sure my dad wanted to express love, but I just don't think um, kind of going back to what you were saying is I don't know that they were taught that or, or were comfortable with that or, you yeah. know, coming out of what uh, World War II, Vietnam, Korea or Korea and then Vietnam. I mean, it was a it was a tough go and there wasn't much room for kind of that softer, gentler side of a man. And I think we missed out on a lot or that at least they did, because um it's kind of it's easy to polish the outside but like the bible says it says you can be polished on the outside but 
you could have dead man's bones inside. It could be empty. And uh, I just came to a realization up there going through all that in Alaska that uh, I had some definite void areas in my life as far as being a dad and being a husband and, and all that stuff. No doubt. So what was your childhood like? I actually, you know, it, I thought it was a great childhood for the most part. I mean, I had some, um, you know, there was a, a, an episode that kind of took me off uh, my, uh, I guess my compass took me off my bearing. Um, so my dad, like I said, he was a high patrolman and NCIS and all that. My mom was um, uh, living in Guam and was Miss Guam when my dad was in the Marines. And so they got married and everything so my mom was very affectionate she taught us all about you know hugging you know saying i love you and all that kind of stuff my my dad just wasn't uh you know i just wasn't really comfortable with that um but it didn't mean that i i didn't idolize him and, and look up to him as my hero and you know i can still remember him getting ready and putting on his uniform and his badge and and his gun and and just thinking like, man, he was like a superhero or something like that going out to, to do his job. And, uh, you know, my mom was, he was working nights and days and crazy shifts. And my mom was the one at the baseball games and the football games and, and all that stuff. And as much as I, I wanted him there and I wanted his approval, it just, uh, you know, it's just kind of that man's thought of, Hey, I've got to, I do my part. I earn for the, the family. And uh, I go out and um, take care of bad guys and keep the world safe and and all that. And so just from a distance, he was he was always my hero. And he used to pick me up from kindergarten. We used to go quail hunting and dove hunting. At least he did the hunting. I was more of the <laughs> the bird dog going out and getting them. But you know, those are things that he loved, the man stuff. And you know, he took us up to the Sierra Nevadas every summer. Um, during our childhood and, you know, fly fish for trout and, you know, rabbit hunting out at my grandma's took me on my first deer hunt. And so that stuff was great, but, um, and, you know, I talk about it in my book when I was eight years old, um, without realizing I helped my dad pack his car to, to leave the family and, you know, where my brothers and I are standing there and, talking about who helped most and you know my dad's not able to really even look at us and um, he opens the door and I said dad what's wrong and he just said hey you know I'm not going to be staying here anymore I'm going to be leaving you know your mom and I still love each other da 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 and uh, he got in his car and I watched him drive away and I don't know something flipped a switch flipped and at that point I was uh uh, I was never enough inside. I never felt like I uh, had met my dad's approval or achieved earning his love and just felt like a failure. And, and then from that point on, it just uh, ended up getting in fights and all kinds of stuff growing up. And, and, but I was never going to let anybody close enough to me again to ever hurt me like that. And two, I was going to show the world and him that, uh, you know, that I was worth something that, that him leaving, you know, that was, that was his mistake. So that's, so I had it good and then I had it bad. I think most, probably like everybody. 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's, you know, our generation, we hopefully we've seen a lot more of that than the upcoming generations with uh, parents splitting up. I know my parents split up and, you know, growing up, I don't, I think that was probably 50, 50. Um, yeah. And your book, you kind of talk about uh, some, some bad uh, adolescence there yeah. that, that went on for how long did that go on for? I, I moved out and was living on my own at 15. So it couldn't have gone on too far as it, as far as at least the, the structured part of it. But yeah, it's just, you know, my dad was, he, I remember getting beat up in the fourth grade and my dad had enough of that. And he, for the next two weeks, he was taking me into the garage to teach me how to fight. So um, he wasn't going to have his son, you know, coming home and scared and getting beat up and having black eyes and, and so in a lot of ways, I learned to solve different things uh, with force versus, you know, being smart and, you know, like a normal human person and, and trying to um, just use words and compassion and empathy and understanding that wasn't really part of my uh, forte growing up. I, I was angry, never told my dad about the things that I was feeling or, you know, the, the sense, uh, the sense of, uh, no self-worth and, and all that stuff, you know, the things that eight-year-old boy tells himself when, you know, he watches him, watches his dad leaves. And pretty much, I just, I thought it was something I did to be honest. And so, um, I was angry and, uh, my dad taught me to fight and I found out that I kind of liked it. <laughs> I don't know how to explain that without getting into too much detail here, but you can definitely see that you're a fighter. Yeah, it's my both my dad here, obviously on earth, and you know, my dad in heaven too prepared me, I believe, for everything that I was going to to face out there. So where did you guys grow up? So my uh we grew up, my dad started the academy in the highway patrol in East LA and so Los Angeles, and so um Lived there after we moved from Guam, um, lived there in L.A., and then moved up to a place called Big Bear, and then spent most of my life um, in San Diego. Oh, yeah. And that's 17. You know, I started looking at some different things and became a, um, a reserve firefighter. I knew I didn't want to be a police officer just because, you know, my dad had been hurt too many times and everybody's worried. And so I thought I'll do something easy, like being a firefighter. So that was, uh, um, that's where I've got my first taste for it. And that's where I started pursuing that. Right. How about, uh, siblings? You got any brothers or sisters? I do. I have, um, I have two brothers that are younger. I'm the oldest. Um, my middle brother actually lives out here with his fiance here in Texas. And uh, my little brother, who's both my brothers are one six three, and then Matt, his name is Roger, but we call him Matt. He's the one who lives up in Wasilla. He's retired from the Air Force and spent a couple of tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, he's my little brother. He's the one who uh, pretty much helped me follow through with a, a goal and a dream that we had pretty much all of our lives of doing a you know a big game hunt in in. A remote area of Alaska. Yeah. So, Why do you guys call him Matt? It's just the easiest. It was a default. Um, you know, everybody all through the service and the fire department, my name's Matthews. 
you know, they see that and they just shorten it up from the fire chief all the way down. They just say Matt. So the, I've, I've been called Matt at times. And that's just what us brothers always called him because my dad's name was Roger. And we thought that was kind of the, the holy ground that we're not going to call you the same name as we called dad. So, oh, yeah. so we just called him Matt and it always just stuck. Yeah, just stuck. Cool. So uh, you're married now. You got any kids? I do. I've been married. This is going to be 20 years this year. And I have three kids. I have a stepson who is 24. And then I have uh, my middle son, Ben. He is going to be 17 in May. And then uh, um, I have a daughter who is 14. And her name is Sierra. And my wife's name is uh, Rhea. And uh, we live in Texas and we love Texas. Wouldn't move any place. Never want to move back to California. That's for sure. That is a, a place. Not, that, not enough snow in California. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Although, you know, it's a great place topography wise because within a half an hour, you can, well, maybe an hour. You could be at the beach or the desert or the mountains. I mean, it's just, it's great that way. It's just, uh, yeah, different times. Uh, just not in agreement with some of the politics in, in California. Yeah, I've been but, down to California once. I had a buddy who was playing uh, professional hockey down there. So I went down and spent two weeks with him down there. He was playing in Fresno and it was kind of neat. We, we went all over, went to San Jose and, uh, San Francisco watched a football game there. Went down to San Diego and uh, through Anaheim and all that stuff. It's pretty right. neat. Pretty neat it spot. A, it's definitely a cool area. Yeah, it is busy, crazy. Yeah, very. Down in California has as many people as our whole country has. So <laughs> it's uh, now, now it's, Kevin. You live in Kelowna, is that what I heard? Yeah, you bet. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's the southern, sort of the southern. Uh, I'd say mid-southern part of British Columbia, so not too far from the border. Right, right. I had buddies that used to, when I was living in Washington, they were all uh, snowmobilers. I think they used to go up to an area up in Kelowna to go snowmobile all the time. Yeah, probably up towards Big White. And Revelstoke has uh, a lot of snowmobiling up there as That's well. That's what so. it was. It was Revelstoke. That's exactly where it was. And Most I told of that's shut down now. Is of the, it really? Yeah, they shut it down for the caribou recovery. A lot of it anyway, so... Um, Oh. Yeah, I, I was telling you, too, that, you know, most of my family's from British Columbia and they all own, uh, you know, their houses, their getaway places over there in Manning Park. Yeah, that's neat. Small world. Yeah, it is. Back to your book. You, you talk about uh, that first hunting trip with your dad. What was that like? Well, that was kind of a culmination of, you know, that was, you know, my dad kind of doing and teaching his boys uh, had to be men, you know, he was teaching us about camping and all that kind of stuff. Well, my grandma and grandfather, he retired Air Force out of Edwards Air Force Base and their backyard was miles and miles of desert with jackrabbits and chipmunks and coyotes. And so um, I think as soon as I could probably walk and stand on my own, we were walking the desert and my dad was shoving a 22 in my hands and teaching me how to aim and stuff and so spent 
I don't know, two or three years going out with him and begging him to take us out as soon as we got there and how to earn money for a box of 50, you know, 22 rounds and sweeping the breezeway and doing whatever we could. And, and then finally the day came that, you know, we went out on our own, um, you know, my brothers and I, and, you know, it was just shooting jackrabbits and stuff. But I mean, if you'd asked us, we were on a, a huge safari or something like that. And then, you know, once I get the bug, um, I asked, uh, I asked my dad for my first rifle for Christmas and he ended up buying it for me. And, and so I was, uh, I got to go out with him. Uh, you know, I mean, when you get those, um, those bullets and you're talking about, you know, the copper coating on top and they're shiny and you got your rifle and, there was just something about uh, going out with him and, you know, him teaching me how to load it up and, and talking about safety and him putting me on the lead and teaching me how to, you know, hunt Jack rabbits and, and all that stuff. And actually shooting that first rabbit with him by my side. I mean, it just kind of, yeah, it's not big game, but it's, to me, it's never been about, you know, taking an animal. It's, it's that whole process of the excitement and one being there with him and, and him teaching me and, and showing me and, and, and just kind of a dad and, and son moment. And uh, that was a pretty special time for me. Yeah. Yeah. It is for all of us. The first time dad takes us out yeah. out on our first hunting trip. Yeah. It's a cool time for sure. Absolutely. So, uh, did you do a lot of hunting after your dad left or was it more something you, you kind of did as an adult? When, so growing up in, in San Diego, um, I spent a lot of time bass fishing and, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. Um, so we had, uh, the San Diego river flows through there in between all the industry and everything and found out, you know, where they build these roads, it would back up these lakes. So we would be down there either fishing for bass going into my freshman year, skipping school to go fishing or when we got our license. Um, Cause I was going to night school after 15, but I was still friends with all these guys. And, and so then we started, um, <laughs> these guys had their own, their dad's shotguns and they started trusting us, you know, and get a license at 16. And so we started ditching school to go duck hunting, quail hunting, dove hunting coyote didn't do much deer hunting because there wasn't really that there's small deer in san diego but so that uh upland birds we spent a lot of time in high school doing that and then of course you know my dad living on his own he's coming in and out of the picture at different times and he actually took me hunting deer hunting in san diego and and uh yeah so I wouldn't say I was a really big hunter, probably more of a fisherman, outdoorsman. But as I grew older into my adulthood, I, I found that just from I could go back to those moments with my dad and what he taught me and, and be able to, uh, uh, you know, just getting in the woods and getting with getting with God and, and being able to uh, um, just think about all the things that he had taught me and 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 outsmarting the animal you know whether scent or wind or placement of your stand or or you know whatever doing the scouting i love the scouting just as much as i love hunting i mean it's 
um, I'm living those hunts as I'm going out scouting. And, and um, as you know, it's, it's a lot of work to bring a hunt together. Yeah, absolutely. What kind of, you mentioned you have small deer down there, or, or sorry, you mentioned you had small deer down in San Diego. What kind of deer? They're Columbia blacktail. Oh yeah. Okay. So um, it's kind of like, I guess a small mule deer, but yeah. there's, there's, I'm sure that there's some big deer, but you know, this was hunting with dad and typically you're going to drive as far as you can, but I'm sure, and I've talked to guys that have shot pretty good sized deer, but they're, they're hiking in, packing in miles down near the, you know, the Mexico border and then, you know, packing it out and all that stuff. And, and it, it wasn't until later that I really got into kind of that extreme end willing to do whatever it takes. <laughs> but uh, I have I, my, we got a white tail. Actually, we got a doe. My son missed a, a white tail buck last year. So we just started getting into whitetail hunting and I've got, uh, and I'm sure there's a lot of dads that can uh, resonate with this, but you know, when, when your kids are in school and you got sports going, because if I had my choice, I'd be hunting every day. But the fact is that there, it chews up a lot of time and my kids are in select sports. And so baseball and volleyball and softball, chews up a lot of time and you can't really get them out and um you know on the weekends and stuff because there's tournaments and and so uh yeah you know i do what i can i've got a polaris I, i've decided i'm going to i just bought a expeditionary kayak and mounted a i've got my mount for my bow on there and i've got lights on it and a navigation system so i'm going to start hunting some public lands going in at night to hunt pigs um, oh, yeah. on some of the local reservoirs and stuff that'd be cool love to do some pig hunting we don't have they're just starting to make their way up into canada now but i imagine once they get up here there'll be a open season on them they seem and, to fest yeah. wherever they go and those suckers are smart i'm telling you those things uh, i know people probably don't want to hear this but there is just something about being on the ground at night and hearing those things coming in. And I've got a, a way that I hump my own corn in. I've got a motion activated light. So I got to go in there and set all this stuff up. And then um, I got to build something around me. So, cause in case a, you know, a boar comes in, they have Russian boars and stuff. And those guys, those suckers are mean. And so last thing I need is to have a second check the box of getting attacked by something else. So I'm a little bit more cautious now, but it, it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's your heart's pumping. You can't see them. I mean, and the smart ones will circle you. They'll wind you. Um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. I like hunting pigs. Yeah, I'd love to try it. I, I was Somebody was telling me that the how fast they produce. And I couldn't believe it. The, the, uh, the females, they can reproduce after six months. Yeah. Crazy. And they and do it tw twice a year. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Hey, you know, that's, that's absolutely right. And sometimes boy, you talk, your talk about your heart pounding is you're sitting there. It's quiet as can be. And, you know, sometimes you nod off until you hear that snapping branch or whatever. And then, you know, something's coming in. 
but sometimes literally a herd will come in like 40 or 50 pigs. It sounds like a stampede and that really gets your blood moving too. Yeah. What do you use to shoot those things down there? I, well, you can, um, so I worked for the U S army Corps of engineers, so we control all the dams and pretty much all the lakes in, in Texas. And so, um, you figure out, you know, where, cause we have a lot of public hunting areas. So there's areas you can hunt shotguns with a slug. I'm not really a fan of that. I, I use a bow. Um, yeah, I've got, uh, Something about just getting all, you got my mud boots on, getting all camoed up and humping in my pack and my climbing stand and my bow and, and getting in there in the daytime and setting up and clearing my lanes and, and all that stuff. Cause I always pick different spots based on the last time I scouted and uh, yeah, going in there and setting up and then it's usually, hopefully I'm, you know, I field dress it, you know, and then you're carrying that much more weight out and then you're you know, making your way out about three or four in the morning. And, uh, it's a, it's a long night, but it's fun. How many of those suckers are you guys allowed to take a year? Those are unlimited. I can go out and if I, yeah, yeah, I could go out. If I shot one every hour, they would be happy because they're technically, you don't even need a, um, on, on land. If you get permission to hunt, you don't even need a license to hunt those pigs because they're just so destructive. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm saying that you 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 can't get rid of them as fast as they're reproducing. Exactly, and um, you know Ted Nugent, he does that. Uh, I think it's called a pig ellipse now, where he takes up hunters and with automatic weapons up in a helicopter. Oh, it was a, a porkalypse now. I seen porkalypse now. That's the <laughs> one. Yes. Yeah, it's that. pretty gnarly. <laughs> well you know these these farmers they're just like can't get rid of them fast enough and and they don't want to poison it because of the fact that you know some of the other animals and stuff can um uh, you know obviously get some of that stuff and you have a some type of impact to another animal so i think texas a&m is looking at something that when they feed on something it, it causes the pigs to be sterile I mean, that's how big of an issue it is. I'm sure there's some mugs that would like to see them up in Canada, but I think a lot of people are worried if they got up here, they would just kind of take over. Although, you know, the topography is pretty tough. Well, in BC anyway, it's pretty tough. I don't know how they do, but then again, you never know. I think they're pretty tough critters. Well, I don't know that the pigs have the food chain like you guys have up in Canada too. I mean, we got bobcats, coyotes. I think there's an occasional... Some people say they've seen, um, I don't know if it's a leopard or something, but you don't really get into mountain lions until you get up into Oklahoma and moving up that way. So we really don't have that. So they're almost like king of the beast down here. And yeah, so, yeah, they don't have the predators. That, yeah, BC's full of predators. I mean, yes. the bears and, and cats and stuff and wolves, a lot of wolves. So Absolutely. I mean, a pack of wolves can do a lot of destruction. Yes, I've never seen it, but obviously I've seen movies and documentaries and yeah those wolves can be uh quite aggressive yeah for sure so you're a bow hunter when did you get into archery i got into archery when i moved from san diego to texas because i found out about those pigs and you know my wife drew a circle in this area and said yeah you we can move anywhere in this area because it was about the schools and i'm like 
dang, well, this ain't the country. And so I had to figure something out. And so, uh, um, we have Bass Pro and Cabela's and there used to be a Gander Mountain and I just started living at those places and uh, just decided I wanted to start bow hunting. And right about that time, you know, Matt came up with the idea of um, going up and hunting in Alaska. And I thought, hey, what better way to practice is to start bow hunting pigs. Um, so I bought, uh, I bought a Matthews no cam and uh, one of those uh, shooting blocks, the black shooting blocks and started doing it in my backyard and then started, I hooked up with a couple of hunters that were doing it and they kind of showed me the ropes of, um, and it's very interesting. I'm telling you, when you're in the, the creek bottoms at night, it's, uh, it's very, very interesting because you're in there, those pigs are moving around at night. That's when they do it. You're in their area, in their territory and, uh, you do have to be careful and it's you're, so you're was, bow, bow hunting at night yes so how do you how do you see the pigs well see that's what i was talking about see part of my kit that i bring in there is um i take a uh um, a motion sensor light that you normally you would put under a feeder right. and i put paracord 550 i string it through there and i tie it to the end of my folding knife and I throw it over a limb. And so I set that motion light and then I put the corn down and typically I'll put something in the sense of, because if you don't do it all the time, you know, they get in a cycle. It's usually like a two or three mile circle that they go around and kind of like, I guess like elk, but a lot smaller and they'll get on these eating cycles and you got to figure out one where the hog highways are. That's what we call them you know, where they're moving through. And then you got to figure out a good place with good lanes. And then you're thinking about the wind. And then um, usually you'll put a little bit of corn down just to get them used to at least swinging by that spot. And once you get them used to at least come in the area, then I'll, I'll get that light set up. And then nowadays I, I bring a, a full on um, climbing stand and, and set up. And so when the light comes on, you got to wait to shoot until they're crunching on that corn and they can't hear. And then you just let her rip. Well, yeah. Well, hunting pigs, you got to put it in there, in their ear, literally. Oh, ear. is that right? Oh yeah. Yeah. You gotta, it's anything else. I have tracked pigs miles with what it looks like. There'd been a, you know, silence of the lambs massacre and those things, I don't know. They'll seal up. Those things are tough. And more, more times than not, they're swimming a creek and, and then they're gone. So, yeah, literally, I got to the point where I just put it right in their ear and just drop them right there. Yeah, well, that's not a very big uh, target, putting it in no. ears. So, you got to be dead on. <laughs> I don't know if I'm that good a shot, but <laughs> I have a few kills and my, my family have eaten some, some, uh, barbecued pig that's for sure and 60 to 80 pounds that is prime eating right there that's the good stuff eh yes sir nice so now you've had a pretty significant well i mean you have a pretty significant resume um can you tell us a bit uh about some of the jobs you've held well i, ha I have to preface it with you know i'm a little bit of a i guess an over overachiever and it's 
it's not always stem from healthy stuff. So when I, you know, list some of this stuff off, it's, uh, it's just because I was trying to figure out who I was, but, uh, I told you I started as a, a, a firefighter in, um, uh, San Diego. And then I was an air force firefighter, um, for four years. And then I came out and finished up at McCord up in Washington and became a, a career city firefighter. And so I did a full career, um, basically on a rescue company, truck company, engine company, hazmat tech, you know, you get bored, you, you start doing all these things. And, uh, ended up working at the world trade center for three and a half weeks and nine eleven. yes sir and then well, so so being an american what was you know when nine eleven happened what what was that like well you know i mean it was a scary time because they uh it basically caught us with our pants down i mean there was indicators a lot of indicators but nobody really took it serious about you know flying airplanes as bombs into into the towers or into buildings and so everybody was shocked and then seeing the collapse and everything. And my good friend who was on rescue five FDNY, he was killed in the North tower. And so his brother, who's also an FDNY guy called me up and that day and, you know, said he was missing. And, um, he said, I, you know, get out here. You can work with the FDNY crews and we got to find him. And so I think I was on a plane, I think it was like four or five days later, once they started opening up the flying, and uh, I went out there and I didn't do much. I, I mean, just, yeah, three and a half weeks of just sifting through rubble and parts and pieces and, and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, but it must but, have been, you know, it's quite the experience to even be part of that. It was, it was, uh, you know, my dad was working for NCIS and, um, you know, he was uh, in during, you know, the bombing of the coal and Cobar Towers and, and that's ultimately, I think my dad was the catalyst for me moving into what I did at uh, a later time. Because when I came back from the World Trade Center, I I never wanted to go to something like that ever again. Um, you know, when when they're loading up wheelbarrows full of, you know, different shoes with feet still in them and, and all that kind of stuff. It's just, it's just not something that... Uh, you know, I love my country. I'm a patriot and willing to lay my life down for my country. And it's something that, uh, yeah, it just, it tore me up inside. Um, I just wanted to do whatever I could to somehow prevent doing that. And so I came back to the fire department and, and talked to the fire chief into letting me uh, establish a terrorism response operations division focused on uh, suicide bombings and chem bio attacks and attacks against uh, command posts for, you know, running incidents and stuff. And so, and that was okay, but it still wasn't enough uh, for me. Uh, I wanted to stop terrorists from doing that. And so I went to every school known to man in the country and then went and did some training overseas in, in England after their 7-7 bombings in London. And then once I got all the schooling and I started applying and then I was hired as one of the Homeland Security managers for the city of San Diego, did that for a few years. And then, um, 
I was fortunate enough that with my dad um, leaving his mark with within the Navy, then I was hired uh, by the Admiral for Navy Region Southwest and uh, was tasked to, to protect that whole Southwest footprint. Uh, was, you know, three carrier groups and a whole parking lot of ships and subs and, and all that kind of stuff. And so be careful what you pray for, be careful what you ask for, because, um, yeah, I, I felt, and I, I found out a lot of people feel like this when they, they take on things like this is, uh, I felt way out of my league and I felt way underqualified. And, uh, so I just had to surround myself with really, really smart people and begin to expand using my head knowledge and my education to, um, at one point, I mean, Sandy was 1.3 million, you know, Americans plus the largest naval footprint, um, on the West coast. And, uh, I just learned as I went and, uh, hopefully when I get to heaven, I'll figure out exactly how many we were able to stop because it was a very busy tempo in that area. Yeah, I bet. You know, looking at your resume and then in the beginning of your book, you talk about, you know, you, the the trouble you had when you were a kid and, and the trouble you got into and, you know, it's a, a bad apple, so to speak. It's, you know, it's uh, it's definitely quite the career path, um, you know, especially explaining how you how you started out there. So, yeah, it's pretty. Well, it was it was intermixed. Like I said, it was, uh, you know, I had some broken pieces inside and I think a lot of men deal with father wounds in in different ways small or large and um a boy wanting the approval of his dad is a pretty strong force and so intermixed with that um i learned how to fly airplanes i was a commercial helicopter pilot flying search and rescue up in the the north cascades out of snohomish um and then yeah, in my spare time, I was starting a, a national emergency service system in uh, East Africa, in the jungles up there near um, Sudan and the Congo. Now, you guys, you guys did a bit of uh, you and your wife were over in Africa doing some work, weren't you? Yeah, yes, sir. And that was uh, that was awesome. <laughs> I got to uh, I just went along as the EMT, and she's an accountant, so she just was the logistics. We were just a part of the support team. And three days into it, I was bored out of my skull. And uh, I just said, is there anything I can do? And they said, sure, what do you want to do? I said, how about first aid? And they said, well, you can do that, but you can't use any of your Western materials. It needs to be indigenous and you need to be able, they need to be able to do what you're teaching them after you leave with no supplies from you. I'm like, okay. So I spent a couple of days in the jungle with some kids found some banana fiber to make um, bandages and secure splints, cut some sticks, found some absorbent grass, and then realized they all had these American t-shirts. I guess they had containers full of these t-shirts that, you know, the U.S. throwing something. <laughs> they're always trying to send them something, but there's, everybody has all these t-shirts. So I just sat down and kind of designed a Bush first aid uh, class with, um, bleeding control, shock management, and bandaging and splinting. And yeah, from there, five years later, we're writing grants and, and setting up rescue stations and outfitting them with firefighter gear and the jaws of life. And 
and all that stuff. So it was God really, that was part of one of the most fulfilling things that, that the Lord has ever allowed me to, to participate in. And uh, he blessed it. Still going on today. Is that right, eh? Yes, sir. Oh, that's awesome. Did you get to do any hunting or fishing out there? <laughs> no, I didn't. But I did run into some people that they did a lot of fishing in the Nile. They had a Nile perch competition that I wanted to go to. But I did see I was most of the people that uh, I spent time with. I mean, when I say in the jungles, I mean, it was thatched huts and I heard a lot of stories about hunting leopards and lions with spears and stuff. And I was like, there's no way you're going to, I'll never do anything like that. But uh, yeah, they were hunters over there. I just pretty busy and not, not able, nor did I have the funding. You know how much a safari can be. Yeah. Moving on to your Alaska trip. How did that all come about? Well, having moved to Texas and, and my brother you know, like he's been up in Alaska for, I want to say it's 14, 15 years. He's got five kids. He's got his house up in Wasilla. He's taking caribou and moose and bear. And I mean, he's a, he, I would call him a real hunter. That guy is, you know, he fills the freezer. Not a trophy hunter. He's got a lot of mouths to feed, <laughs> but, uh, he ended up calling me one day and he's like, Greg, he's like, I've been thinking, you know, we've always talked about, you know, doing um, and testing ourselves in remote Alaska and doing, let's do a big game hunt. And would you be interested if I started putting some stuff together? And I ended up saying yes right away before asking my wife, but um, she went along with it. And uh, then we went to, uh, he came up with some, Originally, we we're going to go up on the, I think it's called the Tanana, was where we were supposed to go originally. I didn't put that in the book because we got up there, and even with his jet boat, there wasn't enough water in the rivers to get around, and so we had to, we had to pick something else and short notice, and ended up going down to the, um, the Kenai area. So it was just you and your brothers, just you and your brother. Yes, sir. Now you guys had. Uh... You had a little bit of delay, did you not, for original yeah, date? Yeah, we did. I ended up um, right at the transition time that um, there was some stuff that came up with my new job here with the Army Corps, and it killed me, but I had to call my brother, you know, a couple months out and say, there's there's no way that I can, you know, get up there and, and be able to keep my job here I said I need to be here there's a lot of you know important stuff going on and and uh my brother's really gracious he understood he said well that'll just give us another year of of preparation and uh if if you're like me and probably like every hunter out there every time you buy a piece of equipment or test a piece of equipment or or whatever you're imagining yourself using it out there and uh you know, it's, it's a tough because my mindset is redundancy. I want multiple ways. I like the tech stuff, but I don't like to rely on it completely if I need to get out of some place or need to get myself out of a tight spot. So I had put a lot of work into researching everything that, uh, that I was planning on bringing, how it was going to be used, looking at weight, looking at getting it in there multiple uses for multiple things and so yeah it it sucked having to delay another year 
Yeah, no, I, I know the feeling. It's one of those things you, you mentally prepare prepare for, you physically prepare for, and then if you got a delay, you feel like you kind of got to start all over again. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, I just, um, you bring up the physical part of it. You know, I think most people that, that do hunting seriously realize that you can, you can do all, buy all the fancy gear you want and, you know, twist an ankle or not being in shape. And man, even with my brother up there in a kind of a do it yourself hunt still cost me over 10 grand, you know? So it's not cheap. And so, you know, the preparation mentally, the preparation physically, the equipment, the testing, the figuring out, you know, if we had to purify water, you know, we had the straws and we had the tablets. So just building that redundancy, but not needing Sherpas <laughs> to carry everything. So, you know, you always got to balance that with weight and, and, and all that stuff. So I love that part of it. And it, to think I was going to have to do that for another year was kind of a bummer. Yeah, no, I, I'm the same way. You know, that, that minutia of the hunt is, you know, it's, it's, it's almost the funnest part. Just, you know, the, the excitement you get. And- Absolutely. And I enjoyed, uh, so we split up the duties. Um, you know, I had the medical piece and the navigation piece. He had a, I think it was a 22 or 20 foot, 24 foot jet boat. So he's, his responsible was the fuel and, and the, the nav charts and mine was the navigation on land and GPS and making sure I knew my, how to do a compass stuff and taking a bear, you know, just all of that stuff, just making sure that we were prepared to be able to, in the event of an emergency to, you know, to get ourselves back out of there. And even to the point where I reloaded, even though I was bow hunting, we both had 300 wind mags and I reloaded all of those rounds uh, 200 grain nozzler partitions, um, you know, that's a belted magnum. And so he was trusting me to, you know, make sure that, hey, you know, I want to be able to depend on your ammo. And and so it was, you know, there was a lot of trust built during the whole process too, because if one of us failed and forgot something that was critical, um, although we inventoried and, and made sure, but uh, you know, you build trust and, um, you know, when you're doing something like that, and of course, being your brother, it's, you love each other and, you know, you got each other's backs. Yeah. So what was you guys' plan? You, your brother had a jet boat. So the, the, basically the, the final plan that we ended up going with was in an area on the Kenai. Um, it's called Skelac Lake. And, uh, and it's, they call it a lake because it's just a basically um, a widening of the Kenai River. And so our ultimate plan was, I think it was about 12 miles down upriver. I guess it would be upriver, was Caribou Island. That's where we put our spike camp. And then the area that we were hunting is probably another six miles by boat. And then we averaged about maybe a mile and a half to two miles of hiking in. So we were, we were quite a ways from, and that was from, you know, the launch on the river there. So um, that was just to get to the launch. And then Soldatna, I guess it probably maybe eight, another eight to 10 miles driving, I guess, if we had to reach a, a hospital or someplace that, you know, if we needed 
surgery or something like that. So the plan was to set up that spike camp and man, we, we researched everything on how to set up. I had a kitchen, I had a tarp set up that was permanently had ties on it. So I could do the directional thing for the drainage. Cause it, you know, it rains obviously a lot up there and, you know, a supply tent as well as our sleeping tent that had a vestibule and, you know, to carrying the chainsaw for bucking up the firewood and, and, and all that stuff. And, um, our camp, our trip didn't go that well. Our hunt didn't go that well, but our camp was awesome. <laughs> and that's just comes from two years of planning. So what was your plan? Were you guys planning on just using the river to do, to, uh, you know, do a lot of glassing? That's it. Yeah, that's exactly what we were doing is, um, it was, the middle of September, I mean, it was still cold. I mean, every time we get on the boat, you know, the the morning dew or frost is frozen. So there's still ice forming on the, on the edge of the lakes and stuff. And yeah, we just pull out there and be, just begin scanning and binoculars and, and just glassing the whole time moving down, just trying to see some movement that we might want to, uh, um, you know, hike up and do some scouting. And um, so we're about... Uh, that day that um, we ended up getting to the place where we were going to really hunt it was about six miles in and, and we had spotted a bunch of uh, scat bear scat on the uh, on the shoreline there and I had a black bear tag I, I mean, my focus wasn't on bear at all um, so this was about probably four days into glassing and not seeing a whole bunch and uh, ended up coming into the, this cove at the, I guess it would be the east end of that Skelac Lake. And it was just, it was beautiful. I mean, it was two probably 5,000 foot ranges on either side and um, the colors were beginning to change. So you had some of the golds in there and, and uh, there was a creek there that there was an active beaver dam and you know once we pulled up and started glassing up on one of the ridges my my brother saw a really good sized black bear and uh you know we considered going up but it was getting late if we would have if we would have taken the animal we would have been packing meat out in the dark and which is never a good idea and so um but then again looking out we saw a huge rub right in the center of this, of this valley. I mean, it was, it was obvious. And I had never been, you know, I think I'd been moose hunting twice. The other one was a, with a rifle, but I had read enough and known enough at that point, exactly what to look for. And when I saw that white patch on that tree, I was like, we need to go look at that. And he's like, well, what do you think it is? I said, I think it's a rub. And sure enough, it was probably five foot off the ground from where it started and went up to about probably eight feet, I guess. And there was, uh, there was the antler felt that was still bloody on the ground. And that's when I really started getting excited. I'm like, well, let's go back to camp. Let's go eat some T-bones and live out this day right here and know that we've got an animal here that we're going to be able to at least get in and get a look at, if not get a shot on. Yeah, so they, they weren't rutting up there yet, were they? No. A little too early. A little too early. And then we, you know, we ended up 
getting there's a in fact i think it's up near you guys i think it's in montana there's a resident her believe it or not of moose and i forget what the name of it is but i ordered it um i know cow and estrus urine that's actual urine and um i don't know if that's something i mean that stuff is we just put tiny little dabs on on some areas up ahead of us I'm still not convinced that that's not something that brought it in, but I know we called that grizzly in. So, so that's your, uh, that's your last day of the trip. So maybe, maybe you could tell us about your last day of the trip and I'll let you decide how much details you want to give out about, uh, about that <laughs> well, day. How, how much time do we have left and how much does, does your audience know anything about this? Or is this the first time that they're hearing anything about you know, you know, it, it, some people, they might be familiar with you and your book. And for the first time, this, uh, you know, they may be uh, hearing about you and your story for the first time. So, like I said, right. I'll, leave, I'll leave it up to you how much you want to give out, give out to people. <laughs> All right. Well, I, what I will tell you is that um, in surviving this, there wasn't a whole bunch of bravery going on here. It was pure uh fight or flight in the sense of do whatever you can to survive and uh so four days in to a 10-day hunt i've never been more excited in my life i just i just told you about what happened the day prior found the rub and everything and so once we get there and it didn't even really dawn on me grizzly and that's probably a stupid thing that that i didn't consider i guess i just alluded it to the the black bear that my brother saw which but is easy to do i mean when there's black bears around you generally don't think about grizzly bears because you know black bears generally aren't in the same vicinity as grizzly bears well and that makes me feel better because you know i'm a hunter i wouldn't call myself uh you know, I am not one of these guys that you're going to see on, you know, outdoor magazine and, and just the ultimate hunter. I love hunting. I love being out in the outdoors. I think I, I have a good understanding, but I'm no expert. And so thank you for saying that because it makes me feel better because that's it's always I always cringe when I have to say that because there's probably people out there saying, well, dummy. You yeah, you're, you're in Alaska. <laughs> right, exactly. So we see there's more scat as we pull up on the uh, um, on the shoreline there, and you know there's obviously footprints and different stuff, and um, but we're kind of focused on getting up there to where that that moose sign that we saw, and so we're doing some glass, and we don't see any movement. The bear's not uh, the black bear's not up on that ridge line. It was feeding on blueberries or something like that, and so um, we decide the wind's in our face. So we decided we can move up this valley, but we're going to stay at the, I guess, the east side up against the tree line and just be moving slowly along the tree line. So if we see anything that somewhat we're not going to be able to uh, or we'll be able to kind of blend in. I don't think and moose from what I've read. I don't, I don't know that moose see that well. I know that they can hear pretty good, but um, I thought that sounded like a good plan. And it was probably a half mile to the rub. And then there was probably another mile, mile and a half walking in until we got to a place there was a, in the middle, there was a little bit of a, a knoll or a rise that was about 50 yards long. And, and you're bow uh, hunting? And we're bow hunting, yes. And my brother, oh, I missed a Q 
key part, I guess. Um, because of all the scat, I did have the mindset, you know, bow hunters, we like to be free, you know, just throw a pack on and get our mud boots and, you know, me and the bow and, you know, going light. And I actually walked back to the boat and grabbed my 300 wind mag. And I put that on my shoulder and I thought, okay, if we see nothing that I can shoot with a bow, maybe we'll see that bear and then we can go up and do that. And that was my only thinking. So my brother shoots a 300 wind mag. I shoot by design because we wanted to make sure that we had interchangeable ammo and it definitely it came in handy. And so um, moving along the east side, we get up to this place. We're whispering. That's it's very very quiet. You can just hear the wind in the in the treetops there, and it's just perfect. Okay, I mean, if you ever find that perfect spot and you know that it just it's just ready for something to walk into the picture, um, we come up with a plan. I'm going to move to the forward of the knoll. Um, he's going to drop back about probably the full length of that knoll, about 50 yards behind me. Because what he had told me and what I had read is moose tend to hang up. Um, if, if I was to be calling, they may be hanging up, hang up 50 yards further. And so he was going to try and draw them in closer for, for my shot. And I found a perfect place, saw the trail, had a confluence of one came right in front of me for a broadside shot straight out. And then the other one I would have to turn, but that trail led back down along the knoll back to where my brother was. And that was the main trail where we saw all the, the tracks and, and all that stuff. So we were in a prime spot. I'm fully camoed up. And uh, yeah. with a little bit of cow piss on you. Actually, I ended up having it on my fingers, but I made it a point because I've read the stories that you definitely don't want to get that stuff on you. But I ended up getting some on me and, uh, yeah, I know that that's probably not a good idea, especially if you get somebody or some bull coming in, although it wasn't rutting season. But the fact is that that's the warning on there is do not put that on you. That is not what that is for. And so but I ended up getting some on my hands, tried to get it off with the dirt, but I'm sure that didn't do any good. But. So I'm forward there, fully camoed up. It's been about two or three hours, I guess. I'm glassing with uh, my binoculars as well as my rifle scope, just trying to see any kind of movement, ear flicker, whatever. And then I basically, I see some movement off to my left. And I'm just one of those guys that I don't like to look at it in the eyes until I'm ready to shoot it. It's something I always feel like they always can tell when you're staring at it. So I'm purposely not looking at it. I hook my release. I swing and I draw back and probably 35 yards up this trail is a eight and a half foot, which they estimated probably 600 to 650 pound grizzly standing on its back legs. It's got his nose almost straight up in the air and it's swinging its head back and forth, smelling the air and not being an expert on what it looks like when a grizzly starts uh, hunting you. But that was my immediate thought that that thing was looking for something. Um, of course, at that same time, my, my brother is doing wounded calf calls down below me. 
Yeah, because he doesn't know what's going on at this point. He, he has no idea, no visibility on it at all. And so I've got a decision to make. I've got a, a 357 Magnum, which my thought was if there was ever a wolf or something that showed up, that was the only thing that that was for. The 300 Wind Mag was not intended for a grizzly, and the bow is definitely not an option. And so um, I'm thinking I'm either going to crawl under the log that's right in front of me, and hopefully it doesn't find me. Um, but then I was thinking, this is all flashing in my head, that if it takes that other trail, it's going to find my brother, and he's not going to know what to do because it's going to be right on top of him. So I put the bow down. I grabbed the rifle. And I get on my hands and knees and I low crawl around this tree and uh, I step out and bring the rifle up. And because I'd been glassing, I had it spun all the way up to 16. And so all I could see was fur and I was shaking so bad. Didn't have the wherewithal to dial it back down to four so I could see. So I just dropped the rifle down to my hips, tried to muster the courage to, uh, not shake and uh, I put the the rifle at my hip and stood up on my tiptoes and I just said whoa bear and that thing's head just swung to me it locked eyes with me it dropped down on all fours and uh, I watched it as its head went down 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 till its chin was probably about six eight inches off the ground and I remember seeing that big black lip curl over its seemed like it was over its nose, the ears folded back, this muscle came out of its head and then all the hair stood up on its back and then it just started charging me. So uh, at this point, I'm thinking, false charge, false charge, when's it gonna stop? 15 yards, it's gaining speed and going into slow motion. I can see the, 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 the keg, the whatever that moss tundra moss being thrown behind it as it's digging in and coming at me almost like it was throwing a rooster but uh at about 10 yards i thought okay this is where it's going to slide to a stop you know woof at me and and head out and uh it didn't it just kept coming at about i don't know 10 or 12 feet I fired the, uh, the 300 wind mag in its face, didn't do anything. It kind of threw it off, its head turned. And then when it focused back on me, all I had was the rifle, didn't have time to rack another round. So I stuck the rifle out almost like a, just a defensive measure, like a bayonet. And the rifle hit somewhere in the bear's mouth as it was lunging for my face. The rifle came back, slammed me in the head. It kind of threw the bear off and it hit me like a, you know, like a, a lineman on a football team and slammed me to the ground, slid right over the top of me. And I'm trying to catch my breath and it spun around and put both its paws on my shoulders. And the first bite was to my face. Um, tore a tennis ball size hole in my throat and split my face from uh, basically the middle portion of the side of my nose down through my, my lip. And, um, as soon as I felt the surge of blood from my throat, you know, being a firefighter, I mean, I treat a lot of people never had to treat myself, but, uh, I felt that rush of warmth. I spun my head to the left away from the, the bear 
trying to put pressure with my chin down on my neck, which exposed the back of my head. And then the grizzly took the entire back of my head in its mouth. What's going through your mind at the time when this, you know, this bear's chewing on your head? Well, I can tell you what it feels like. It feels like if you were to heat up four pokers in like a fireplace till they're like red hot and then just drive them in your head. That's what a, that's what a bite feels like. Um, the fact is that um, it felt like the thing was going to crush my head. And the only defensive measure I had, because as soon as my, my face kind of exploded with blood, so I couldn't see, I could just hear it and I could smell it. And I could feel, um, obviously, the bear's mouth around my head. The only thing I thought of doing was just taking my arm and found the nose and started punching it in the nose as it's, you know, clamped onto my head. And in about the fourth bite, um, it released my head and had a hold of my arm. It stood up lifted me up off the ground, did a violent shake and then threw me. And, um, yeah, when, once I hit, it was just the adrenaline. I mean, there's a lot of screams my brother said that I was making sounds that was inhuman. And that's why I'm saying there was nothing brave going on here. I was just, I was just trying to survive. So as soon as that bear hit you, he knew what was going on. He was, he was running up the hill. Yeah, he was moving, but he also had um, waders on. He was he was moving towards it, but he was uh, it was a little slow. So, and you know how I'm if you've done moose hunting, I mean, just take the most inhospitable area, add mud and muck and everything else, and and that's great moose hunting. And so it's moose terrain is not friendly for walking for sure, no. unless you're a moose. Right, exactly. And so um, when it threw me, I got on my butt and I just started trying to keep the bear in front of me, trying to figure out where it was. And so I'm kind of scooting, scooching in a circle based on the noises I'm hearing. And then all of a sudden out of my right ear, you know, I can feel its breath and the growl and then it attacks my head again. Oh, the smell of that. It's breath because, you know, I mean, I've smelled inside of a dead bear's mouth and I, I can only imagine what the smell it, must have been like. It, it smelled like rotten meat and feces all mixed together is what it smelled like. It was, I'll never forget that smell. So with all of that, I can tell you the attack lasted and I go into, I mean, this is just the ele <clears throat> the elevator pitch I'm sharing with you. There's I go into detail about yeah, and in your book, you get right into it. It's, yeah. So there's, it's very detailed and, and unfortunately I remember every detail and I, I write to it and, and that's one thing that they like, especially the, the hunters and the fishermen, they like feeling like they're right there and understanding everything that's going on because after it let go of my head the second time, the only thing I could think of was, roll over on my belly, spread my legs, interlace my fingers over my neck, and just don't let, my only thing was don't let it get me back on my back. And so uh, I can remember it got right over the top of me and dug its claws underneath my ribs on the left side and tried to roll me. 
Um, and then I just got right back in position. And then it basically took its jaws, sunk it right through my jacket into my lat and picked me up off the ground. And then I just, it dropped me and I came right back in. And then after that, uh, it got right over the top of my head. And all I felt was this big slap to the back of my head. And then what sounded like, you know, your nails on a, like on a chalkboard, it started from the top of my ear and drug its claws down around the back of my scalp and degloved the whole back of my head and exposed my, my skull and my spine and all that. So at the time you must like, what's going through your mind? You're going to die here. Yeah, it's what I haven't given up fighting, but I'm figuring I'm on borrowed time right about now. Um, yeah, it's I don't want to ruin it for any of the the readers and stuff, but yeah, no, definitely not. Um, that's just the beginning, because mm -hmm. no, you're um, right, and and the way you describe it, it uh, you know, it seems like you're watching it on TV. You get into such good detail. You feel like you're you're actually there with you and, and watching this go on. So your brother's running up the hill. He gets there. And, uh, you know. that's when, Yeah, that's when the bear is. Uh, that's when I'm starting to fade. I, I haven't gone unconscious or anything yet. I still can't see. I'm bleeding, obviously. My arm is, feels like somebody's put it in a, one of those vice on a workbench and just cranked down on it when it bit through my arm. Um, and at this point, as the bear was moving around, I was trying to just keep it away from me and I kicked it two or three times. And then finally it spun around and sunk its teeth into my, the top of my calf right above my, or right below my knee. And uh, of course that was another scream. And that's when my brother ended up, coming up and so the bears in between me and him and he's with a 300 wind mag and you know not that we ever practice this but he recognizes that you know a 300 wind mag very well could go in the wrong spot could go right through that bear and so um he was trying to change his trajectory and and then he decided that he was just going to charge that bear multiple times until it released my my leg and and eventually it did now bear is after him he's able yeah. to stop the bear yeah he ended up shooting it twice with a 300 wind mag and still didn't kill it yeah it ran off right and was so now you guys don't know if you got an injured bear exactly. lurking in the trees behind you and we can hear it and uh yeah i guess the really exciting part, I mean, of course, the attack is obviously exciting, but um, now you're faced with what do you do with potentially fatal injuries, a wounded grizzly that's already attacked once, that already has tasted lots of my blood, um, and somebody who can't see and my brother is there and obviously you know he's not a firefighter he's not you know he's done good so far does he have any uh any training in that like any uh medical training 
well first aid or i think yeah they all have basic you know he was obviously in the air force and and served overseas but you know but but you're coherent at this time you are you able to walk him through it or are you just right out of it no i i uh the only time i ever and i don't even know if i passed out i think i just closed my eyes for a second so i was conscious for the whole thing but after going through that and that adrenaline and dopamine brush and um you know hearing i can't see them on all fours and i can't breathe and you can hear the blood pouring out of your neck into a puddle underneath you and your brother's screaming at you we have to get out of there the only words that i could say to him was i think i'm dying and uh of course that's that's it's not easy for a brother to hear that for sure right exactly And, and he was obviously upset about that and he's like greg tell me what to do tell me what to do and i can hear the bear and the and so um yeah i mean you can't tell the story without saying that it wasn't me i mean god showed up and interceded because spoiler alert i survived um but the fact is that there was a lot that goes into um i had to walk back two miles back to the boat so and you guys walked out so now you're up torn calf busted up head hanging off the back here right scalp walking out not knowing where this bear is yeah so my, and then you still but you got two miles to get to your boat right and i didn't go unconscious but collapsed of exhaustion twice so the plan was he stripped all the ammo out of my 300 wind mag because that's the way we planned it so he had all my ammo and all of his ammo and he was wanting to carry me, but with the bear still alive, um, he just we made a decision that he was going to walk about five to ten yards behind me, um, w- watching our six, while I basically walked and crawled and and uh, <laughs> collapsed a couple times and just made my way back to the boat. Luckily, he was. Uh, you know, we were able to get, it was just blood in my eyes. So we were able to get to where I could see partially. And, uh, how long did it take you guys to get back to your boat? I would say probably about anywhere from three to three and a half hours, I guess. And now, now you get to your boat along the water, but I mean, you still got a long way to go. Yeah, I imagine we do you have a sat phone or there's no cell. No, those are the, some of the things that, you know, and we can talk about that afterwards, you know, what there's always things you can do better, things you can do different. Um, so once we got down there, I was still bleeding really badly. So I had to, I couldn't bandage myself. So I had to teach my brother again, how to do a sling and swath and um, how to apply more bandages and, I was starting to get hypothermic and there was probably one and a half foot chop on the, the wind was blowing. And, and of course, you know, you've got white caps on the water now and it just seemed like everything was against us. Um, but like I said, the Lord interceded and 
Um, we used part of the gasoline that we were hauling the extra gas to um, build a signal fire. And that was eventually after, um, well, I don't want to ruin it. There's, there's a lot more stuff that throughout that whole trip, believe it or not, I'm just hitting the tops of the waves. There's, there's unbelievable stuff that even to the point of seeing physical miracles performed by God out there. I mean, there was, it was um, all the stuff that, that I had been throughout my whole life. I had taken an inventory when I was figuring that I was pretty much looking over the edge at, at dying and realized that everything that I had ever accomplished in the end really didn't equate to, to anything about being satisfied as, as a person, as to who my real identity was and, and what really mattered to me and what, you know, it, and it was shocking because I had done so much thinking that that direction was going to prove to the world and myself what a man is supposed to look like. And, and in the end, amazing, amazing things happened throughout that whole trip. And I write to all those details is the grizzly attack is not the most exciting thing that happens in that book. And you've read the book, right? Yep. Yeah. I've read it actually. I, uh, I read it twice. I actually read it uh, quite a while ago and, uh, and then I read it again lately. And then actually, um, just after new year's there, I actually listened to the audio book. So I caught it all, man. <laughs> well, thank you for, you are one of the, uh, uh, one of my followers and, and I appreciate that because, uh, it was hard. I don't know if you noticed that about the audiobook, but there were pauses there where, I mean, I just had tears streaming down my face and I had to stop because it was so, it was so traumatic and so emotional. Yeah, it sounded very emotional. And that, that was one of the questions I had for you. If it was, you know, the physical or emotional aspect of that attack was was harder to overcome. Well, you know, and I've got to put the, the credit back on, on the Lord. Because, I mean, I do, not that I didn't have a relationship with the Lord before that, but I'll tell you, and not just because of that, because what I was rescued from, the pain and everything that I had, had happened to me as a kid, the Lord healed me from all that. And I can honestly tell you that I have never had a single dream about the attack. Is that right? Well, that's good. Cause I was going to ask you about, uh, you know, I, I mean, I've had encounters with, with uh, grizzly bears and, you know, I had close encounters this year and I, you know, out backpacking in the woods and you lay there awake and, um, well, that first night we had a, a really close encounter and I laid awake that whole night, just thinking, you know, they were, um, just thinking about my kids and, right. um, you know, just, just waiting for a grizzly to come push down on the top of the tent. But, um, after the attack, are you afraid of bears? You know, um, of course, I mean, I, I have, I guess a healthy respect for them now. More than you did uh, before. Yes. More than, and what I will tell you is. So I was in Soldatna, I think it was three days, maybe four days. I mean, I was pretty medicated, but um, we left in the evening. And then if, if you've ever been up there and you're leaving out of that area, driving back to Anchorage, it quickly turns to wilderness, except for that highway. 
And I literally refused. There is no way you could have handed me a million dollars in a suitcase and said, Greg, just walk, just walk 10 yards into those woods to take a leak. You could not have pried me out of that truck. And so that was the extreme of being very, very fearful. It was, I was really, really upset that I was so scared and that what turned out, it was such a dream and such a, something I used to lay in bed and think about and, and live each day that hunt and so excited. And that's my only thing that I struggle with is that that whole situation robbed me of what was something that I had was so excited about and looking forward to. And, and, you know, I am going to face my fears at some point. I mean, I'm back in the, the Creek bottoms chasing pigs, but I need to get back out into either Canada or Alaska into the woods. And of course, I will probably go with a professional guide that making sure that they're a good shot and knows, you know, not that my brother didn't know, but if we were with a guide, maybe the guide could have stopped it, but I do need to face that fear. And it's not about killing. It's about, I love the hunt. I love the preparation. I love the anticipation. I love the talking about it the night before around the fire the sharing of a little whiskey and a little bit of, you know, having a steak dinner and, and just living the hunt, knowing that you're prepared and going out and being okay if you don't get the shot. But if you do get the shot, knowing that all that work, it's worth it to me to face those fears, to, um, to get back out there. And I don't know if I'll be able to I mean, you haven't written a book, so you don't know, or maybe you have, but there's no money in writing books. I'll tell you that. It's not like I'm, I can just throw down another ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 to go on an Alaskan hunt, but maybe someday I will be able to do that and, uh, and face those fears and get past it because it really stole a lot of joy from me. So if you could go back and do it all over, would you do it again? I would do it again. Um, I would... Um, one, I, I tease people. I said, um, if I went this time, I'd have a tack vest with grenades strapped to it. Just kidding. But that's, um, I definitely would have a rifle that could be shot quicker with, you know, just to be able to defend myself. And if, um, I think if I've been more of an experienced hunter, you know, like some of those professional hunters or guys, they probably could have stopped it. I think it was um, just not being prepared or, or even expecting something that trauma traumatic was going to happen to me. But um, the other thing I would bring is um, quick clot or some type of material that uh, provides additional clotting. And then um, also uh, make the investment in, in renting a, a satellite phone. Those are the two things that I would definitely do different. I, uh, I spend a lot of time in the backcountry. and I, I have a spot messenger and it's got the SOS button on it. I pay $11 a month and I, 
I don't go anywhere without that. Good for you. Well, that's that's good preparedness stuff, and you owe it to your family. You know, we we all want to go out, and obviously, it's it's cool. I've been out a lot of places by myself, but I think going out with somebody is obviously the best. But the other thing is, as we get older and we get more responsibilities, and we realize where our values are, we need to, as much as we want to go and be the mighty man of the wilderness. Um, we got to do everything we can to make sure we get home so we can love on our family and take care of them. You know, when reading your book, um, you explain your brother, he accompanied the wildlife officers back to the scene. And uh, was he hesitant going back there? Well, you know, I have to tell you that um, the federal fishing game, Alaska fishing game, the uh, wildlife officers, which is Alaska state patrol, I believe, they all showed up, I guess, while I was in surgery in force and, and, uh, you know, they're figuring, okay, another, they call them the, well, you guys probably use the term too, the flatlanders down the for, lower 48 ended up doing something stupid and got themselves in a mess. And so they basically started grilling him and asking him, obviously starting with licenses and permits and where were you going to hunt and da 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 and, and uh, here's one tip that I would recommend. I don't know if Canada does this, but so if, so when they're when they're questioning you guys, what are they just questioning your experience? No, they're assuming that it's our fault. Oh, so they're just assuming it's. Uh, it's oh yeah, fault. I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess that makes sense. Anybody dumb enough to get attacked by a grizzly is probably the, partially their fault, but their assumption is that um you know once they find out that he's from alaska then that kind of i guess settles them down but um but what happens after that is uh they're talking you know they're have gonna have to go in to see the bear or figure out where it's at and and my brother's like i could take you right to where it should be right to the spot and uh you know if it's dead it's going to be around there and they said well yeah, we'll do that. We'll let you go with us, but we want to go inspect your camp too. Like, all right. So he, he had no problem going back, going back nope, there. Nope, not at all. So yeah, they went back to our camp, saw that we were squared away. So, I mean, even to the point of we laminated our topo maps and all the little things, I mean, redundancy and detail, we were definitely prepared. And then he ended up taking them back out there. And, you know, that was, that was the part of the book that put me on edge there. And, you know, I was pretty shocked, um, you know, when he, or when you explained what the, what he had discovered and, uh, and what he got to do after, I thought was pretty cool with the bear. So, right. Um, but, uh, I, th I think, uh, you know, for those who want to know more about, uh, about that, they're going to have to buy the book. So I think we'll leave it at that. <laughs> well, I, I hope it, um, I can guarantee it's an adventure if you like those kind of adventure stories where, um, you know, I think as men, we all want to question whether or not when we're challenged to the point of uh, near death, you know, what, what will we be able to draw on? What will we be able to do? Will we freak out? Will we, you know, those questions, I think it'll place men and or women in that position where, you can armchair quarterback all day and you may have better ways of doing it. And I think that would be good to, to discuss that, but it definitely moves you to a point of um, really questioning 
about um, kind of primal stuff of what would I do in that situation? Could I get out? And what would I be thinking? And what would I do? How would I, you know, how would I plan? So if it happened to me that, uh, you know, they might be able to get out of there. But the biggest piece is, um, and if you're interested at all, um, we hear so much about, quote, miracles in the Bible. And, and uh, I guarantee you there was miracles. And I write to detail in those things. And um, there's nobody that convinced me otherwise that that's not exactly what took place out there. Okay, Greg, wild awakening. Um, I want to thank you for, for taking a bit of time and, and sharing your story with me today and everybody listening. And um, where can people buy your book? Well, that's a great question. Any place that books are sold, uh, Barnes and Noble, uh, Amazon, and <clears throat> so they have it in hardback. We just released the paperback, which reduces the cost for everyone. Um, it's an audiobook, which is also I. It was hard, but I, I I narrated it and read it, so it's in the the author's own voice, and then it's also in Kindle. So any place books are sold, Wild Awakening, How Wounded Grizzly Healed My Wounded Heart. Yeah, and I, I've read it and I've heard the audiobook, and I can contest to both that uh, they're definitely worth the money. Well, thank you, sir. I, I greatly appreciate that. I'm humbled by that. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to let you go and, uh, and stay safe. And I hope to, hope to hear about your next trip to Alaska. <laughs> All right, sir. Thank you very much. And thanks to everyone out there for listening. You guys have a great night. You believe that? Wow, I guess it's all worth it. You want to succeed, you want to fish, you want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss life on the water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. <laughs> the destination for outdoor entertainment.